Are you ready to consume the knowledge to take your investigations to another level? Are you looking for ways to fuel your driving force that provide the techniques in hunting, capturing, and interrogating killers? Bring justice to homicide victims. We are their voice. I am your host, Freddie Ponce, and I interview the top homicide investigators around and the great minds in the field of death investigations. They will share their case studies to help you succeed in solving the toughest of murder cases. Prepare yourself for an unforgettable experience. This is Talking Murder. Welcome back to Talking Murder. I am your host, Freddie Ponce. And we have another great episode of Talking Murder today. Uh, I wanted to bring back uh, my good friend, uh, Jose uh, Pep Granado, um, part two of our uh, previous session. We have been talking uh, on several occasions about doing uh, shows throughout of principles of investigations in uh, homicide cases. And and for this matter, um, you know, principle of investigations and this, the, the thing that we talk about on the show can can be applied across the board on several other types of investigation, not just uh, homicide uh, homicide cases. Um, you know, there are different aspects in uh, in homicide investigators that are that are simple uh, points uh, to bring up. Uh, some other some are technical parts of investigations, and others uh, are more emotional emotional elements. Uh, that come up within cases and and how to deal that uh, how to deal with those and um, emotional moments that affect uh, the investigator. Uh, we wanted to touch a, a little bit about that as well. Um, and in every episode, our intention is to bring up experiences of actual homicide cases that we have worked, and uh, we want to share those um, um, share those with you. Um, so then, then we'll see what this uh, what this interview uh, takes us. Uh, uh, you never know when you start an interview somebody uh, what avenues it, it takes us, and we start talking about different topics and bounce back and forth. And uh, our purposes here is to talk some shop of homicide cases, and for the listeners who uh, want to improve that are out there that want to improve uh, cases that they're working on, improve their technique. And for those seasoned homicide investigators that are listening, for your enjoying pleasure. And for the retired guys who are raw, thanks for listening in. Let's bring Pep Granada back on. All right, Pep. So this is a uh, continuing interview from our... our uh, our last session, we were talking about uh, your. Um, uh, we were talking about your book uh, that you're you're. It's in publishing right now, actually. Um, you're talking about the different principles of your investigation. We were talking about um, about the investigators working at the at the crime scene, and uh, right. I always had a concern about this of. of when we're when we're arriving at the at the crime scene and we're that that time frame from when we first get the call, um, and then it takes some time for us to to get to the scene. Uh, let's say uh, about forty minutes has passed, right? And we you're already getting information from your 
the homicide team that was on duty because we're on call, and there you start getting that information as you're you're getting to the scene, and when should we start getting concerned about? when we're going to start interviewing the witnesses or when we're going to start interviewing the victims uh, family members does it, when does it when do we get concerned about hey look they they've been waiting here already for an hour for us to get here uh, now we want to send them to the homicide office to get interviewed should we be is there a time limit we should be concerned about well okay let's break that one down is it that we're concerned for comfort or is it that we're concerned for the case? Or is it that we're concerned for the expediency of moving forward? Well, if you think about it, in order for us to move forward, we need to start getting information as soon as possible. And real information. Not, I think I heard, or they told me that someone said no. So you want the legit witness Mm -hmm. to be interviewed. But you go into an interview, and if you don't have proper documentation in your head and in your notes of what the scene was like, who's to tell you that the witness that you're speaking with isn't lying to you? Right. You wouldn't know. So, yeah, it's an inconvenience for a short period that will enable you to solve the case down the road. And for a 20-minute inconvenience, a 30-minute inconvenience, I think it's a very small price to pay for the reward. Right. Because at the end of the day, your purpose there is to ensure that you solve or do as much as you can regarding a crime that just com was committed. Mm -hmm. And you're the one that's speaking for that victim, right. regardless of who the victim was. So you want to make sure that you do right by that. So, yeah, it's important to get to the witnesses as soon as possible. But it's also important to have the right frame of mind when you're doing the interview, that you know what you're talking about. Right. That if they're referring to a car that you know exactly what car they're referring to. Mm -hmm. uh, if they say that there was uh, hedges, uh, buildings, or whatever, that you know exactly what they're talking about. Because you walked the crime scene yourself. Correct. Yep. Now, as the lead investigator, you do the crime scene and you work it. Some lead investigators say, I'm good at doing this, let me do this, and I'll do the crime scene while, listen, um, Freddie, I need you to do me a favor and I need you to interview uh, the first two witnesses because I have a good um, understanding that you know exactly what you're doing with the witnesses and I know that you are going to go down the path that we need. Right. Or vice versa. I can say, Freddie, do me a favor because we've worked cases together. I need you to handle the scene for me. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get that first crack at the witnesses. Right. So you already had it. your initial walkthrough of the scene yourself. Correct. Correct. You're comfortable with it and... You, right. You're going to go in and be that star witness. Correct. Because remember that once we get to the crime scene, and some agencies are fortunate, like, you know, Miami and some of the bigger agencies where uh, they have their own crime scene personnel that come in, um, and you have multiple teams that are out there that you can utilize. 
some agencies are small and they don't have that luxury mm. where they have to wait for, let's say, a contracted crime scene from another agency or they have only the patrol units and there is no other teams on call. It's only the investigator and that's it. Yes. You know, so those are things that those are the dynamics that you really have to look at and say, how is it that I can manage this the right way? Yeah, it would be so, and they're going through a difficult time, but we see it in our way, or how convenient for you that you you see a witness on the crime scene and then you tell them, oh, here's my business card. Can I get your phone number? I'll come back and see you tomorrow. And, and we just don't do that. No. Because we want their information as fresh as Correct. possible. There is no tomorrow. And you no know tomorrow. how you've been enough, you've been around this enough to know, and any investigator that has worked cases knows that when they tell you, oh, yeah, my name is uh, Jimmy Jones, and um, this is my number, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Hmm. And all of a sudden, what Jimmy Jones? Because you didn't bother to get a legitimate ID card. Right. Or the number that they gave you is some bogus number to uh, a corner store. It, it happens so and, much, people don't get it. Yeah. Actual witnesses of homicides... And the mistake made by the investigator is, get your name. Let me get your name and number, and I'll get back to you. And we'll meet tomorrow. No problem. The de detective will do that. Yes. And you're. Or you're how many black. times? Well, even how many times don't you read a the report that's uh, authored by the uh, officer on scene, primary officer, right? He turns in his report. You're reviewing the report. And all of a sudden, in the body of that report, on the narrative, inside that narrative, you're looking and you're watching, uh, yes, I contacted a witness that stated that the person was wearing all black, mm. had a handgun, and he ran towards the park. Mm. And you're looking, going, okay, but where's the witness? I don't see that witness information. And then you contact the officer and he goes, oh, yeah, they just didn't want to give their information. They didn't want to stay. They didn't want to stay. They didn't want to whatever. Really? But you didn't even bother to get a, well, how do we, that's no good. Right. How do we even, how, how do we say this? How do, how, how do we come across this? Yeah. So you get that and it's yeah. frustrating. So when you get to the scene and you've already um, did the first cursory walkthrough, which should be enough just for you to capture what you have. Mm. Um, and we'll just go with simple, you know, with let's just say one victim. And you've got everything pretty much in, you know, one victim, two casings, and, you know, you're in the middle of a street, you're good, and you have one witness. Okay, that witness should have already been going to the station. Be time, by the time they get to the station, they're seated, they're given coffee, they're made as comfortable as possible. Mm. Now you can decide who do I want to send to the station to interview. Is it going to be me as the lead or is it going to be one of the detectives that I designate? Because mm. that's going to be his that person's responsibility. Right. Because remember that we also have to worry about state attorney to be notified. Are they going to respond? Right. Are we going to need are we going to need a warrant? Do we need right. a warrant to enter a scene? Do we need a warrant mm -hmm. for a search? What do we need? Right. Then you have the medical examiner. Mm -hmm. Are they going to respond? Most in, in here in Dade County, they do respond. Yeah. There are other counties uh, across the nation 
where the medical examiner isn't even notified until the body gets to the morgue. Right. And then that's where they know that there was an incident. Right. And you're going, and for us, we think of it as foreign because we go, how could that be? Right. Well, there are some places around the country where the medical examiner does not come out to a scene. You know, or or the or the area so rural, way out there, where they can go like from the middle of one location to another, they would never get there. You know, and it's those are the things that that the we difficulties look at. though those investigators are going yeah. through. And that um, what about that the and then the communication between the you decide to stay on scene and you said uh, you delegate another investigator to go interview that witness in the office. Right. Um, I've seen. Um, some mistakes that, that, that are made from that investigator that's doing the actual interview because there, there still has to be a communication ongoing. You're actively working a crime scene yourself and you have your partner doing the interview of, that, of a witness in the office. And so much critical information is coming in as that interviewing, it, the process of the interview is, is happening. Right. Uh, we're in a good time now where we are able to text information right away. Yes. I'm getting this information from the, uh, what the witness observed on the crime scene. Do you see it there? Uh, and, or your, you know, what, what are the different things that you could see at the crime scene that you're communicating back to the interrogation room? Where once, that, once we really take a good examination of the crime scene, that we've walked it, We've done the canvas. We did the initial canvas. We looked at everything that we possibly could. We've identified um, pieces of evidence, uh, casing, strike marks, where we have an idea mm. of what took place. And then you also have, you know, the word on the street where people are saying, oh, yeah, there was an argument and it was over whatever it might have been. Mm. And uh, so-and-so, uh, you know, was shot. The guy that he was arguing with shot him. Hmm. Okay, you can pretty much see if that could be plausible by where the casings were in relationship to the victim. Uh, you can have an idea because if there was a strike mark just past where the victim was, where it could have been, okay? Hmm. What you want to make sure is I don't like to overwhelm um when a witness gives me the raw information, right. I want that raw knowledge. I want that raw intel that they're giving me mm -hmm. because that's what they saw. Right. I don't want to put anything into their head mm -hmm. to where all of a sudden now they start formulating up in their head of, oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 that was. Yeah, he was around the block. He was right, right, right around right. the corner. I don't want that. Tell me what it is that you saw mm -hmm. from your perspective. You know, so... As a team, prior to that interview being conducted, we collectively get together. And that's where as you have your lead investigator, you have your second, and then you have your other two that might be scribes that go out and do the work that investigations do, but you're assigning them a, a job. Yeah. And then you have the supervisor. Yeah. Well, as your team gets together and you go over the case, you want to say... How do we best manage this case? Mm -hmm. Which way do we go where we can do everything and get the job done 
without any hiccups? Well, one, if, you're a, if you have a working supervisor with the team, that working supervisor might be the one to say, look. That's a key word. Yeah. A working supervisor. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know where that, where you can tell working supervisors have been investigators. Yeah. And they still have that, that blood that yes. churns inside them to work yes. a case. Yeah. So they want to be a part of it, not just as sitting back doing, oh, yeah, go ahead and do this and delegate, do that. And, oh. and they're okay, but what are you going to do? But you're not, oh, no, no, I'm having coffee while you guys are working because that's what I do. I'm a supervisor. Right. Well, that's not really helping the cause. Well, you know? well, I mean, you start identifying who used who that work that that supervisor that was not an investigator. Yes. Prior to, and unfortunately, that does happen in in some police departments where supervisors are put in positions of mat where listen, I just need you to manage. Yeah. Uh, whatever for whatever reason, there's a the mentality came upon. Those chiefs that they put them in place there. You do not. You don't need to have been an investigator. You just have to manage it. And that is so. That's detrimental to a violent crimes unit. Hmm. When investigators are being led by supervisors that have no clue, everything gets turned inside out. Because it doesn't flow. You're always hitting waves. Always got white caps. Never smooth sailing. You never have that nice, easy path. It doesn't work. And I can go back to an incident where I worked for, an, uh, for a supervisor who never worked a case in his life. Uh, it was about 2 in the morning. And I told him, listen, I need to go meet with a witness that lives by the Palmetto Expressway, mm -hmm. about 10 miles away from the station. Oh, but what do you need to do that? Well, because the witness is getting off of work and I go and I need to meet with them. Well, but you can, well, that's, you don't really need to do that. You can, I go, listen, I really do. Well, in his mind, I just wanted to get out of the office and <laughs> drive around. Mm. So reluctantly, I said, listen, I need to go. And he reluctantly said, fine, whatever. I get to the witness's house. Back then, I called from the witness's phone. And I said, listen, I'm going to be off the air. If there's anything that's going on, hmm. you can handle it. If, you know, if any naturals or whatever. He goes, no, if there's anything like that, I'll call you. I'll beep you. Back then, we had the beepers. Hmm. I go, listen, I'm going to be interviewing a witness I don't have time to be, no, no, but you can turn on the radio and listen to the calls. No, you can't do that. Yeah. That, how, how can you possibly do that? And no, it doesn't the, work like that. The smallest of things can yes. be a critical situation. Yeah. So then he comes and he says, and this is where I just, he says, well, do me a favor. Keep me on the phone and just, I want to hear what's going on. I, I hang up on him right there. So I said, look, you know oh, what? I'm ending this right now. Yeah. I'm going to come back to the station. I hanged up. I told the witness, I apologized. I said, look, this is what's going on. If you don't mind, he goes, no, thank goodness. This was a very good witness who said, look, I'm going to be off tomorrow. If you want to meet, I'll meet with you tomorrow. 
Because even the witness picked up on the fact that Thanks. this guy on the other phone was an idiot on the other side of the phone. So I got to the station. And so all of a sudden, he was talking to me, and it was almost like, why were you being so, so difficult when all I want, I go, because you need to understand hmm. that this is not a game. And you're now a witness to me doing an interview. You're not even there. Yeah. Who else is around there listening? Who's, you don't understand these things. Yeah. And we're trying to solve a case and we're trying to do right by a witness without putting him out that much. And we're going out there to interview. Mm. And it's bad enough that it's only me tonight that you couldn't even handle a simple call if it came over the air that you need me to have the radio on? Yeah, there's such an... The supervisor is just an, an intricate part of a team. You know, we need them to, yes. to, to be and, present for and, and be available to help. Yes, and right that's away. where the working supervisor who's been an investigator is mm. so crucial. Yeah. Plus the fact that you can bounce things off. Listen, do you think we need a warrant for this one? Listen, should we just go with a consent? Can we just... Another one say, oh, yeah, no, no, go ahead, go on in. Really? Right. Without even thinking about the ramifications? No. So if you have a working supervisor, that working supervisor should be able to say, listen, you're the lead investigator. I'm going to go ahead and handle the scene. And I'll take that burden off of you. And as the lead investigator, knowing that you have 20 years of experience, mm. you know how to work a scene. Of course. So now I feel very confident mm. that I've looked at the scene I can go in and I can start my interviews of witnesses. And keep that, that efficiency right that efficiency going so you Correct. can get to the witness right away. Yes. Yeah. And that's important. Because you, if you can, you want to interview a witness with another investigator just to corroborate what it was that was going on because you never know what can happen with recordings or if uh, the video or malfunctions. Mm -hmm. You want to have somebody to corroborate what it was that you said. Yeah. You want to be able to say... Something comes up in the middle of the interview, the second who's scribing can step out real quick and make a phone call and say, hey, listen, this is what they just said. Can you follow up and see if that's true? That's always so, been so important for me, you know, and keeping that constant communication with that investigator at the crime scene. I, I, I think that's yes. big time. Yes. Yeah. And, that, that, and that's the youngs. I, I, we, we've seen, like, uh, young investigators, though, you're on scene working, you're seen, and... You, you assign somebody to interview a witness and then they start, finish the interview and they haven't taken a break in between to at least give, at least give you enough to, hey, this is what he said so far. Uh, these are the revelations that I've learned. Right. And then you're working your scene, like I say, I'm done with the witness. Yeah. Um, and okay, what did he say? Well, he said this and that. Well, why did you call me? Because I have, you know. And, and, that's, and yeah. that's important, the communication part of it. That's and you always have to have it. The thing with, um, once you've identified the witnesses, that you've identified who's going to interview, that's done, that's perfect. Now you come back and you have the person that's working the scene, and now that person has to deal with either the state attorney, hmm. who's also coming onto the scene, or the medical examiner, who's hmm. coming onto the scene to do the on-scene physical examination of the victim. And 
you want to make sure that the person that's there is competent. So if you don't have a good investigator, or in this case, a good working supervisor, mm -hmm. you're kind of, you know, held to working with one hand behind your back. And that's not something that, that can be hidden. Somewhere along the investigation, it's going to come out if some mistake was made somehow. Oh, absolutely. It, it always comes out. Yes. Just, and, the, and the thing that's funny, and command staffs nowadays, for whatever reason, it's, and I get it, um, you know, manpower shortage, or we just need to bring in, oh, no, this will be a great spot for you. You're my buddy, and you'll be a great supervisor, and it always looks good on a resume. Homicide. Yeah. But okay, but what did you do? Right. You can't even do a a three hundred one or a major's memo because you have no idea. You've never done it. Or now they put you in charge of the unit, the whole homicide unit, and you've never worked a case, mm -hmm. responded to a case, mm -hmm. have authored a, a a supplemental report, testified in court, been grilled by defense attorney. No, you've done absolutely none of that. Everything that you have mm -hmm. is just theory. Because you heard, because you read, because you watched it on TV. So that's important. The crime scenes, the other thing too with crime scenes is sometimes they take longer because they're just, they're tedious. There's a lot of things that need to be done before the body's even removed. And sometimes... Um, and it's really not disrespectful. Um, it's not insensitive. We, we do everything that we can to remove the body from the scene as fast as possible. There's just certain things that need to be done uh, prior to the removal of the body. And, you know, we try to do it as um, humanely as possible for the, for the families mm -hmm. And that's why that communication, again, goes back to constantly having the family being updated on what's going on. Yep. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of sad when you don't get that support, too, from command staff. When you have a body on a scene, mm -hmm. the crowd's a little bit hyped up. And they're not family. They're just crowd. Yeah. And they're hyped up. But the medical examiner hasn't arrived. And you have and, to wait for the medical examiner. Right. And the... And crime scene has to do... Crime scene technicians have to do their work. We're not going to move a body out of the correct. way. Uh, no. So all of a sudden you have that coming. And then you have command staff saying, when are we opening up the scene? When are we taking out the body? When are we moving the yeah, body? Yeah, concerned when about traffic. Yeah. Uh, really? Listen, let me do my job. The faster that I do my job... If you leave me alone <laughs> and I don't have to spend these 10 minutes explaining to you what I explained to you 15 minutes ago, yeah. I can do my job much faster. And I still have to wait for the medical examiner to arrive. Right. There's no other way of doing this unless things have... And, and if the removal company hasn't gotten there, how are we going to remove the body? Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that, they, that's, they, another, that's another issue. Yeah, they usually show up with the medical examiner. Correct. And then the examiner's office has to do their work. Correct. So those are things that you see, those are things that if you communicate properly, mm. people will understand. Yeah. If you get caught up in the emotion, 
then all you're doing is just fueling their emotion. So you can't. You have to bring it down. They're emotional. You have to maintain that even keel. They're hyped. You have to be very sympathetic and empathetic to their to their um, to their concerns. And those are the things that we go back that I bring back on the mental preparation and because it's part of it. How are you going to respond if everything goes crazy? Um, you know. Yeah, and um, and I, I know that the, the we I think we've even talked about this several times and we, we're always talking about this topic about notification of family members and, and how difficult um, how, how difficult that is in dealing with um, with parents and um, and on both sides, I mean, when you're dealing with parents <clears throat> of the victims and the fugitives, the, the killer's parents. Yeah. And, and, and meeting with them, you talk about those, those difficulties of dealing with the, with the parents of, let's, even if they're cooperating, so the say they're cooperating parents. So the thing with next of kin is, as the lead investigator, I want to be the one to do the notification. Right. I don't want that notification to come from anybody else. Because I want them to have and to understand that I'm going to be the one responsible to investigate the case. Not that I come to you and I say, oh, listen, uh, your son, daughter, whatever has been killed and it's another investigator that's handling it, but I'm just letting you know. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to have that contact with the family. you know. And so those are things that are important um, uh, from that aspect of how do you, how do you How do you deal with... Um that 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 emotion or holding back that emotion when you I mean you're making that notification with the family members and um, let's say even for example of the because at some point you're gonna also make contact with the if you're looking for an offender right and you're you're one of the locations you're gonna stop to look for them, obviously is probably gonna be at their family's residence right and you bump into to mom or dad, and you explain to them what's going on. Listen, we're looking for your son for this crime, for the murder of of a victim. And then they're they, you see them as family members uh, that are, they they could be your own family member because right. they're decent people, hardworking parents. Something went wrong along that lines. How are you dealing with those emotions? You know the difficult about the difficulty in dealing with a family who has a son or a relative, uh, a dad, uh, a husband that commits a crime, a horrendous crime. And when you walk in, you say to yourself, "How could this have even happened?" When they greet you respectfully. Um, you can see that uh, they're right now in shock because you're about the you're telling them what's going on, you're telling them why you're there. Yeah. Uh, you're not there because of and you know I always say, look, I just didn't pick your family's name out of a hat and want to come here and totally throw your whole world upside down. This is what we have, and we're looking for 
your relative because there's a connection with this case. It's important that we talk to him or her. You know, we need your help. And then, then now here comes the, the barrier or the, the denial of not my son. There's no way. No, yeah. And they come in and, and, you know, and they're giving you this and you're processing and you're looking at this home and it, again, the lawn is manicured. Uh, the, the house is impeccably clean. Yes. Um, it's and you're looking and you're going. This could be my house. Mm -hmm. This could be a house where I grew up in. Yeah. Uh, you know, these could be my parents. And when you're talking to them, you can see in their head how they're trying to do everything they can to protect their relative. Yes. And they're trying to look. It couldn't be. It's impossible. I can tell you that uh, he would never. And this is one of those. It's a, no, no, no. And you get that resistance. I mean, are they, and then are they, <coughs> and then you have the, also the ones where uh, you, you know that they are aware of their criminal history. Say the investigators are aware of it, that yes. the parents know, and still not my son, there's no way. No. They're always gonna deny it. Yes. Right? And it's, it's a survival thing, I guess, and it's, it's, it's a parent thing. You always protect. You always wanna protect. Right. And to both sides, because I have had them where they go in there and they'll, and it's funny, they'll tell you, I know that, that he's into all kinds of what, but he would never. Oh, okay. So you know that he's not really a good guy. Mm. So it's not like, you know, he's, no, he's not. And things can happen. But do you want that person to keep running? Because you have two ways. The guy who is a pure thug on the street, he'll run. He will go all over the place. He'll hang out with all his buddies. He'll take them in. They'll harbor him. He'll try to find his way to another location because he thinks that he's going to get away with it. Mm -hmm. You know, He might come home every once in a while uh, to sneak in, to grab something. And you know what? And like I tell him, listen, I understand. He will always come on your, at your door. He will always knock. And you being the mom, what will you do? You will always open up the doors and open up your arms, give him a hug, yeah. and, you know, say, hey, it's okay, baby. You know, do you want some soup? She's always going to bring in her son no yes. matter what criminal he was. Correct. And she will yeah. always try to protect. Always. I get it. But you have to let them know that right now, this is what we're looking for. This is why... We're looking for your son, and we're, you know, assuming that we already identified him as an offender. Sure, sure. And two things can happen. He either comes in without a problem, or he's going to force somebody's hand because he's running. Right. He's running, he'll commit another crime to keep running. Or he's running, and all of a sudden he's going to get pinned down by a police officer who has already identified him as an offender, and he's going to do something crazy where the officer's going to have to do their job. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to come out good. And then my next conversation to you is going to be, we just had this incident, and now your son is dead. Right. Is that really what you want? Right. You know, and then a lot of times they'll break down to that, and they'll, 
well, what do I have to do? Do I get, do what you need to do, reach out to him, because I know he calls you every day. We know that he makes contact with you. They, and they won't even admit that then, but that the fact that you're putting it out there, right. that these two dangerous situations could happen. Yeah. They, they'll, they'll help you turn them in. And I always tell them, I say, look, we've already had one tragedy. How many more tragedies are we going to do? Right. You can avoid another one. You can avoid another innocent person getting hurt. Yeah. Or you can avoid your son getting hurt. Why would you want, if that's what you want to avoid, then let's bring him in the right way. And then within that same interview, you know, we, we always want to try to uh, get some background information on the offender, what we're looking for him, and, and she's there. Now we have to tread lightly, you know, because how much are we going to push her? We know we still may need her help to find him. But then now you still need information, gather information about him. Oh, yeah. And then she's going to protect her son because, of course, he didn't do these things that you're claiming. <laughs> but then now you want, you want information from her as well. So um, I guess we should be really deciding here what's more important, the case or you having to know right now from the mother what, what, what it is that need and risking that she may shut, shut down and not help you at all. If I, can keep, if I can keep a family member talking, that's great. A lot of times, how many times have you had a family member just slam the door in your face and uh, I don't need to talk to you? Yeah, you don't. But this is what could happen. And you leave your card and then you'll get a call. Or they'll talk to you for a few minutes, they'll deny everything, or they'll come up with a story that, no, he was here that night, and now they start lying to you. And, mm -hmm. you know, then you're like, well, you know, you don't really want to be com confrontational, but you have to let them know, look, uh, you can't have 15 people say that uh, he was here at this location, at this party, and right. all of a sudden saying he was here all night watching uh, uh, re episodes of uh, reruns of yeah. whatever show you want to, you know, right. it doesn't work like that. We're going to run into the same type of problem with, um, with the victims mother she's yes. well aware of her son's history of crime if we if that's the type of victim that we get and but when you go interview her again that not couldn't you know my son was never involved in anything nope. like this he was never a gang member he would never he was he's never been in trouble with the police mind you you've already have his rap sheet uh he's never had no he was a great student he was going to become the next uh, famous doctor that was going to cure this. Yeah. And I, I understand that. It's a mom. They want to make their relative look like choir boys. They were beautiful. They were great. No, well, life isn't like that. Especially a victim's uh, a bit like uh, we, when we talked about earlier, having somebody, a member of the family, the go-to person, Usually it's one of the parents or like a brother or an uncle, something, somebody really close. Um, and then you were, we're back to that gray area again. You know, how much are we going to push the mother to tell us, to get her to tell us, hey, look, all the history of your son and all the crimes he's been involved with that are not documented um, or leave her there to help us with the case? You know, with that sometimes... Um when you speak to parents, 
after a while that you have that open communication with them and let them know that, look, I'm not here to hurt them. I just need to do what's right for another grieving mom. You wouldn't want to be the one to be grieving. And I know you're hurting, but that mom is never going to have her son, daughter, whomever back. You know, right. let's try to work it to where you're not in that situation. And sometimes they'll break down where they understand because their their son is running, they're running with him. And they're trying, and they've been living with this nightmare for, let's say, for the past three, four years, where they don't know that once, because how many times don't you get that conversation where the parent comes and goes, I don't know what my son does when he leaves the house. Yeah. I don't know when he comes in. I I don't know. And that, and... That agony to, has to be terrible. Right, and then to admit that you failed in the raising of your children. Yeah. Because of their life of crime. Yeah. You know, they... They're always going to back them up no matter what it is that they did. Yes. Because to admit, you know, I, I, I lost them or they're always going to back them up. And, and even if they hear the interview tapes, the confession, uh, you see the mothers there at the trial. Yep. They're there present and they're, they're watching the conviction and their son getting convicted and they're still support. They're still, yeah. The mother's always there. You know what? A mother will always be a mother, um, but sometimes I, I, I had an incident where I went to make next of kin notification to a mom. She opened the door. She had uh, a daughter and another son, younger. They must have been less than 10 years old. And her 15-year-old uh, Apparently, he had been running from some guys that um, actually he had committed a couple of robberies yeah. of some bad guys. Yeah. And they found out who it was, so they tracked him down and they, they shot and killed him. When I went and told this mother, and this was one of those shocking moments for me as an investigator, her eyes glassed up, tears were in her eyes, and very calmly... She said, I want to thank you. And I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> thank me. And she goes, because now I know where my son is going to be. Wow. And I'm going, Mom, what are you talking about? She goes, my biggest fear was that he was going to hurt somebody that didn't deserve it. He's never home. I have no idea who he's with. He comes in every once in a while to sleep. Then he leaves. I don't know if he goes to school. And at least now I know where he will be every day. Well, she was conscious that her son was a danger to the community. Yes. And was always praying that nobody got hurt yes. by his hand. Wow. Yeah. And she goes, I have, That's crazy. I have two children that I need to raise hmm. and and he was 14 14 15 was just about to turn 15 and Jesus you're going Christ. wow and that to me was the biggest eye-opener because a mother was conscious of what her son was up to 
And later on, after that, because I came back uh, to speak with her, and I remember in our conversation, and it was right after the burial, and we were talking. And, you know, one of my questions was, if you knew how bad he was, why didn't you, and not in a bad way, I sort of kind of asked her, why didn't you call somebody to, to help? Right. And she said, that's my son. I'm the one that should be raising him. I don't need anybody to help me. That's like a big culture thing too, right? I it mean, is, yeah. To, to go out, to admit to someone that you have a weakness in raising kids or, uh, or you, you don't want people to identify that that's a failure. Yeah, and, and you so, let it ride to see if you can fix it. And I and and I, and I understood where she was coming from. But I'm thinking, I was thinking to myself, what a cost. Yeah, because she paid a heavy, she paid a heavy price, not wanting to like put him out there in the system. Um, for deeds that she knows he was committing. Right. And it was like when, but when she told me that night. That she was, now she didn't have to worry where he was going to be every day. That was crazy. She was at, at peace. Yeah. Some sort of way. She was at peace. Yeah. You know. Um, so, yeah, there's no, um, uh, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about that one on, on interviewing uh, or, or giving next of kin notification one way or the other. I had a similar case where I've had, I, I, I dealt with, with two mothers and we're always dealing with two mothers or a, 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 a parent, two parents or somehow in, in, in most of the cases. Um, these two guys, the, they grew up together at Jackson High School here in Miami. Right. Friends. Um, the victim in the case, his name is uh, Jesus. And his friend Michael grew up together here in Miami. Um, the victim uh, did not grow up with his father. His mother, very religious lady, uh, great family. All his sisters were all uh, all religious ladies. I mean, like his mother could have been my mother at any time. I mean, even their home was a normal home, uh, but he he grew up with an uncle. And as he grew up in life, and uh, he got more into the uncle side, and his friends, and <laughs> they were. It, it, it escalated to the point where they were moving kilos of cocaine through South America into Central America and finally making it over here to, to Miami. Wow. And his best friend that he grew up with, Michael, um, Michael was the one distributing for him. So Jesus would give him the kilos of cocaine, Michael would distribute them uh, throughout Miami, throughout Miami. Um, just prior to uh, the murder of Jesus, uh, Michael and Jesus get into a dispute. Jesus, Jesus approaches Michael and says, listen, those last kilos of cocaine I gave you, uh, you still owe me about $30,000. You're, you're, you're short. Michael's like, hey, don't worry. I'll take care of it. Uh, I'll come up with the money. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to cut you off not providing you with any more kilos until I get paid. So then now Michael 
gets upset. He doesn't like the deal. He doesn't like it. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to rob this guy. His own friend that we grew up, that he grew up with his whole life. And you always you always try to find something in cases to hold on to or try to find some meaning in a case. For me, this case was uh, a, a case of, you know, uh, betrayal. This guy, they were both into bad stuff, but the guy that he trusted the most, he betrayed him. Yeah. And I was like that. For some reason, I was like, why am I getting angry? I'm the investigator. And that's the nature of that business when they're in that. Yeah. And that money, it's crazy. Yeah. This guy, so, so Michael comes up with a plan. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to set up a, a, a cocaine deal, kilo deal, with, with Jesus. And I'm going to rip him off. So Jesus had already cut him off. So for Jesus to get into another deal with him, he would have to have paid off the, with the remaining balance. So he pays off the remaining balance that he owed him of the $30,000. And then he sets up a 21-kilo cocaine deal with Jesus. <laughs> So to lure him in. So he starts prepping this up. I got people coming in. I got some money. They want 20 kilos of cocaine. Turns out to be 21 kilos. Meanwhile, Michael is setting up a crew of people. Setting up, listen, we're going to set up a date. When he shows up, we're going to take his cocaine. Right? At least the plan was that one. So Michael gets a group of... Um, Four Cuban guys and one uh, one Haitian guy, one black Haitian guy in his, in his crew to set up to set it all up. What Michael didn't know that the Haitian guy, since this was taking about three months of planning, they're following Jesus around, they're following all his friends. You know, they're doing a really, really good job of surveillance. Surveillance. <laughs> they're setting up Jesus really good uh, to see how they're, you know, his where where the cocaine is coming from, where it's going to, you know, that whole setup. What Michael didn't know is that the the Haitian guy and his crew had another crew on standby. So the day that they go rip off my uh, Jesus, the Haitian guys were going to take over and rip everybody off. Oh, and that's exactly what happened. Michael sets up the meeting for Jesus to show up at a gas station. And everybody's waiting in the outskirts of this whole crew. The five guys are waiting in the outskirts of that gas station. Jesus shows up for, for, for whatever reason, Michael thinks that Jesus is actually going to show up with the 21 kilos of cocaine. And of course, he doesn't show up with the cocaine. So they accost him there at the gas station. They surround the car. They can't get out. Michael gets in the car with the victim, and the fight starts. They go into the vehicle. He arrives in a red Audi. He arrives in the Audi. They can't find the cocaine. They kidnap Jesus. This is about 9 o'clock at night. They keep him till about 4 in the morning until they finally kill him. Throughout the night, they're planning on where is the cocaine. They keep him alive. They shoot him one time in the leg. They were to convince him to take him to where the cocaine is at. And the cocaine was in another car at his mother's house. Oh, wow. So 
they they're gonna start a um, a caravan to go up there. The person driving with the victim is the Haitian guy, and Michael is in the car as well. They shoot him one time in the leg. As they leave the gas station in that caravan, Michael forgets, drops his cell phone at the gas station. Haitian guy turns around. The whole crew, the whole caravan kept going. They turn around, and when Michael gets out of the car to pick, go get the cell phone, the Haitian guy takes off with the victim in the car that was already tied up. The Haitian guy calls his crew. He goes, I got the victim. Let's go get the drugs. They go to the mother's house. They give the phone to the victim to call his own mother. He tells the mother on the phone, they're killing me. They're going to kill me. Give them the car. They want the car. So there's a caravan of like five Haitian guys in their cars with the victim waiting down the, down the street. Family pushes the car out into the driveway, put the keys on the hood of the car, on the roof of the car. This is a comedy of errors start to happen now. The Haitian guys, it's a Nissan 300 stick. <laughs> they go to get into the car to drive the car. They don't know how to drive stick. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they're like, shit, what do we do now? <coughs> they got to go find a guy that knows how to drive stick. Victim calls the mother again. Leave the car there. Don't move it. They go hide. The caravan of cars hide around the corner of the, uh, the house. They go send somebody down to little Haiti. It was about, about 20 minutes to go find the guy that knows how to drive stick and bring him back up. In the middle of that, the, the victim's wife sounds the silent alarm to the house. Miami-Dade police shows up to the house. What's the problem? They tell them they changed their mind. Their, their initial story was to tell the police what's going on. They said, nothing's wrong, officer. We pushed the alarm by mistake. Meanwhile, the guys are down the street watching the whole thing. The, oh, cops, wow. the cops are there. The car's in the driveway with the keys on top of the roof. And the police leave. <laughs> the victim's still alive. If they would have told the police officer what's going on, he would have drove around the corner and seen the victim's car plus the caravan of cars waiting. Yeah. The police sleep, nothing's going on. They left. False alarm. The guy with the drives a stick comes back up and they, they take the car. Then the whole caravan goes down to Little Haiti. They have them there in a park in Little Haiti. They take the 21 kilos of cocaine out, and then they take the victim. There was a small church on 41st and like Northwest Fifth Avenue, abandoned church, where it was a lot of illegal dumping used to happen back mm -hmm. then. And there they um, they shot him five times and they set him on fire. They they torched the car. Right. They set the whole car on fire, and it, that's actually where the investigation starts for me. When we first, the 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 witnesses hear an explosion. There's a, fire, there's a big fire in front of their house. We get there. I got a guy charred in the back seat of a car, of a little small two-door red Audi. Run a car company, gives the information, comes back to this name, to this house. We find the mom. Mom was like, finally, 
I was talking to my son. He said they were killing him. I heard some gunshots in the background while I was talking. Um, happened at a gas station. That he was he was at a gas station. So we we're getting that initial information, trying to find out. Come back, see all this thing happening in the news. The next day, I'm watching everything on the news, and uh, get a phone call from a Miami-Dade robbery guy. Go listen. Last night, I was at a gas station. A witness was pumping gas, and he sees a guy getting beat up, and they take him in his car. Witness, he chased the caravan of cars and got attacked from one of the cars. So um, it started evolving, you know, evolving from there, and we were able to reach every single one of Michael's guys and from that one tag of that, that one witness. Um, and going to each one of them and interviewing each one of them, they all start confessing. Finally, we get to the Haitian guy. His name is Travis. He, he, uh, he, I, I put out a, a, a bolo message for him. And they bring him in. The guy confesses. The only one that's missing um, is Michael. Now six months have passed. Can't find Michael. But I've, heard, I've now gone to meet Michael's mother. Beautiful mansion in Miramar. Um, her still married. He's got two, two, a son and a daughter. Thus, you could you could see where the 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 differences where the uh, the father and uh, his uh, what is the other son's name is Daniel. The son and Daniel very close. Mother and daughter very very close. And Michael's the one that's straight off. Yeah, straight off into you know his own uh, his own thing. That's the thing. I mean, it's it's hard when you have. You know, you love them. Yeah. They're they're your kids, and you understand that. As a parent, you understand that. And then you're wondering, but at what cost, though? Yeah. Because it's going to always put a strain on your family. It's always going to be the one that you can never reel in, that will never understand to reason. The one that's always going to give you a call, and it's not to say, hey, how's everything going? It's, I need because I'm in a, in a jam. And that's always going to be what's put in motion. And you can't live like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's hate to, it's sad to say it, but for some of these families, they have to understand that you need to cut ties. And sometimes you're better off knowing, if you look at it from that point of view, that your son, daughter, or whomever yeah. is at least at a location, at a correctional facility where you can go visit them and they're alive as opposed to you're always running around wondering and then wondering if the call is that they're either well, dead or they're coming after him because he just killed somebody. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And I know that it's like off topic because we just went off into, and, 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 and you know, going back into the, into the crime scene and the way that we approach it, mm. it's so important that, you know, when we arrive on a crime scene, um, and it's our responsibility as lead investigators uh, to make sure that we're able to manage that scene yep. uh, properly, uh, that we're able to identify a location where we can conduct our internal conversations um, and briefings mm 
mm. away from everybody else and still maintain the integrity of the crime scene. Um, now, we can use that also to interview people uh, if, they, if it's expedient for us to do it there and then we can let them go mm. um, as opposed to taking them to the station. Sometimes we have no other choice um, and we take them to the station, so that's fine. Um, and that goes back to how long before we talk to a, to yeah. a witness. You know, how long do we keep them? We try to, you know, in, in all of my years, I've never really had a problem with a witness not wanting to, like, stick around and help. I, I, it's been rare where I've had someone say, ah, I, I, I'm here too long. They'll argue about it. They'll say, oh, my God, how much longer? We're, we get that a lot. You know, that, yeah, that we get a lot. But, but you're able to manage to where, look, I'm going to get to you. Just give me five minutes. You know, and they pretty much, if you talk to them, it's when you leave them there and you sort of forget about them. That's the problem. That's when you shut them down. That's the big problem. Because right. it happens. that happens a lot. Yes. And that's because there's manpower issues. There's issues with communication between the crime scene, the investigators at the crime scene, and the investigator that's doing uh, the, uh, the interview where yeah. there's no communication there. Uh, or sometimes you don't have an investigator and you have an officer, and you have to tell the officer, take the witness to the station mm. and just stay with them until we get there. And the officer sits around. They don't really care. They're not really whatever. Mm -hmm. And every time they're asked what's going on, it's, oh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they don't call. So those are the things that, as investigators, we must manage. But a good supervisor should be able to manage that, should be able yeah, yeah. to handle that and still work a scene. You know, because the scene can yeah. stay there as long as we need it to stay there. Witnesses, you have to be, you have to be conscious of the fact that, you know, don't disrupt them so much because you also want them to help you. Yeah. And you don't want them to now it becomes adversarial where they decide that I'm not helping you, you know. So, <clears throat> so that goes with, with, without saying as far as the crime scene. And then, you know, from there, um, I go into dealing with the medical examiner, the responsibilities that a crime scene investigator, mm -hmm. uh, that the lead investigator, the crime scene investigator, and the medical examiner have on the scene. Yeah. Um, and that process, just like the state attorney that's on call, that process and how that all comes together before you move on uh, with the case. What, the, what when you go when we wrap up that that crime scene? What about the um, just quick be, be, before we um, before we finish the um, that relationship that we have with the crime scene text and that briefing right after right after or, or just before. We close that crime scene, and with the that that whole all those series of meetings with the crime scene investigators, how important that is. Can you go over that? Oh, absolutely. The thing with a crime scene is, once you meet, and once you're um, on the crime scene, you have your team, the investigative team, then you have your crime scene investigator, um, and whoever that their assistant might be. Well, once you've conducted your initial briefing with your investigative team, mm -hmm. the crime scene investigator now comes into that briefing because now they become part of the investigative team. And you have to make sure that as the lead investigator, 
you're able to relay information to the lead crime scene technician and vice versa so that everything that is in the crime scene is properly documented, uh, photographed, collected. And the reason for the collection is very simple. It's a chain of custody. You don't want to have 3,200 people touching, grabbing, yeah. moving things. You want it to be the same person from point A till it gets logged in, till it gets put into the locker and saved, and then all of a sudden you're able to retrieve it, and it's the same person. Not that one person touched it, another person touched it, another person, no. You don't need that. So you want to have consistency. You want to be able to ensure that when you do your deposition, when you do your pre-file, uh, when you go to the pre-trial, that everything was the same. It was the same in this case. Mm. It's going to be the same in the next case. It was the same in the case before. All consistent. You get to the scene. You have a quick brief. Yep. You do a quick walkthrough of the scene so you can see exactly what it is. Mm. You come back. You have another briefing. Then that's where you're delegating uh, responsibilities. Uh, who's going to handle the witnesses who's going to do a canvas who's going to do who's going to go to the hospital if there's a if there's a living witness right. or a living victim who's going to go to the hospital you have all that and then you have the one that's always scribing on who showed up at the scene when they showed up at the scene yeah. and what their responsibilities and what did they do and those the, i mean and we always in, include as much as possible those crime scene texts to to be involved in those meetings as, yes. uh, when we close the Right before closing that homicide scene, it's always one final walkthrough with the crime scene investigator. And then when we decide to close it, and then, then we have another briefing, yes. the whole, all the teams, yep. after we've cleared with the witnesses, we, we, we meet with those crime scene investigators. I think that relationship, it's so, uh, it's, it's so important, you know, for us. It is. I'm, I mean, you can't, again, the lead investigator takes the credit for, oh my goodness, yes, uh, oh, you solved the case. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, I did. It was yeah. my, I'm the lead, but it's a collaborative effort. Yes. If it's not everyone working as one, yes. then nothing gets done. I can't solve this case. So I always like to use it as a team um, yeah. uh, success as opposed to an individual because you don't work as an individual. I mean, you just don't. And it is and, and thank those and thank them every day. Those those crime scene yeah. techs for for helping out and doing all the dirty work. If you have a good, the good thing is that it, when you have a good crime scene technician and a good crime scene unit, you're able to bounce things off of them, mm. where they can tell you if it can be done, it can't be done, or at least put you in a position to where you can say, okay, well let's try this, and let's see if we can move from there and that's where things go that's why that and again but you know what everything comes back to that communication yeah that communication you you're not an invest you're not a crime scene technician you know but you need to know enough about crime scene to understand what they're doing or what the technician is doing no and the in the experience that they bring also because they 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 uh they can give you some input too on crime scene. absolutely and, uh, yes they have a lot of knowledge yes Pap, this has been awesome, man. Thank you again. 
Not a problem. So what do what uh, what are you doing with uh, SkyMac Consulting? What are you uh, what are you working with that? Right now, um, I'm on the advisory board at Kaiser University with their criminal justice uh, department. Okay. Um, and now, uh, in two nineteen in two thousand nineteen, um, I'm gonna be more into the uh, lecturing and nice. the actual going out and doing instructional work um, for different agencies. So, so uh, when uh, so if people want to look for you, where do you where do they find you if they're looking? They can if they want uh, to increase their knowledge and go to that next level. Mm -hmm. uh, they can reach me at uh, skymacconsulting.com, mm -hmm. uh, or they can get a hold of me at uh, skymac uh, seven eight six two six zero seven eight seven one, and I'll be more than happy to uh, take on. Um, what about social media? Do uh, you do any social media? I'm on LinkedIn right now, and uh, my web page is up. Um, soon, okay. uh, I'll be up on Instagram, and it'll be posted up. So we'll be. <laughs> I'm trying to out on Instagram. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm trying to get to that next level myself. This is uh, this is new, but this is exciting. This is exciting. These are things. Uh, this is a platform that uh, needs to be out there because there's a lot of young investigators that are getting into the uh, craft and they're not really being taught the way that we were taught yeah because uh, a lot of the older guys that are in investigations are leaving and the transition isn't seamless the transition is a little choppy and, and we're definitely trying to provide this platform this venue uh, avenue for them to uh to yeah. ride on and oh yeah and we'll keep on going because after that you know there's a lot of things with uh uh, leadership aspects and yeah. uh, you know the notifications with the MEs and you know how the investigation should come about and even uh, with the uh, interviews and interrogations I know you're big into that um, those are the things that really formulate that whole investigation because everybody seems to think that you know investigations are like on a TV show it's uh, within uh, 50 minutes and it's uh, done and it really doesn't work that way all right, but then we're definitely going to pick up on uh, probably on another episode. We'll, we'll get on uh, interrogations and go over that. That sounds good. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you got it. it.